We're going to spend some time now looking at the Scripture together. So if you have a Bible, open up your Bible to Romans chapter 12. We're finishing up today our I Heart Clean series. I Heart Clean, how the gospel challenges us to love our city. How the gospel challenges us to love our city. I wanted to finish as I was kind of looking for different topics of how to love our city with a focus somewhat on hospitality. And so I was looking at the different New Testament passages on hospitality. And I found this one passage that really focused more on love in general. Hospitality is a part of that, um, but it's love in general. And so this is just another uh, picture for you just as we put this together. Even when we're doing topical sermons, we're trying to let the Scripture lead us where the Scripture wants to lead us. So we find a passage about hospitality. It ends up, it's really more about love in general and multiple different actions that bound what true love looks like. So we're calling it this morning, the bounds of genuine love, the bounds of genuine love. And we're going to be in verses 9 through 16. Romans chapter 12, 9 through 16. It's page 948 in the black Bibles that you'll see under the chairs. If you want to grab one of those Bibles and follow along with us, page 948, Romans chapter 12, verses 9 through 16, the bounds of genuine love. The title indicates that love is not just a fluffy feeling. Love has genuine bounds. There is genuine love and fake love. There's bounded love, bounded by what God says, by his law by his commands. And then there's the love that just kind of floats out of our hearts. That's, that's the love the culture is selling us. The love where we look inside and see what's in us. And we call that love our, our own desires. God actually calls something else love. It's, it's a real behavior. It's caring for the good of others according to God's word and leading them in that direction, sacrificing to take them at that, in that direction. Um, an early lesson I learned about love was from a mentor of mine who was uh, mentoring me, a seminary professor, talking about the pressures of being a pastor. Um, One of the biblical requirements of a pastor, elder, deacon is that they would lead their family well, right? Uh, And so pastors sometimes can worry about looking like we have a good family instead of actually loving our family. And he said, beware of this temptation. You will always have people watching you, and that's okay, but make sure you're actually loving your family, not just trying to look like you're loving your family. And I think that pressure is even greater today, not just on pastors, but all of us in this social media age where we are constantly tempted to promote an image of ourselves, to show to the world a filtered reality instead of a genuine reality. The opening statement of this passage in Romans chapter 12, verse 9, is just a statement. It's kind of like a heading. In the Greek, it's just two words, and it's like, this is the topic that I'm going to talk about. The topic is not hypocritical love. In the Greek, Paul just says, all right, not hypocritical love. And then he gives us a laundry list of how we can live out true love, bounded by genuine direction of God. Not hypocritical, not fake not image, not filtered love. What does that look like? And that's where Paul is taking us in the text this morning. So Romans 12, verses 9 through 16. Let love be genuine, not hypocritical. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. 
Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to what is honorable in the sight of all. I'm going to stop there. As you can see, the passage continues, but it's so long. There's so much direction here. We're going to stop there because really he starts to repeat himself there at the end. I'm going to pray that God would teach us. Um, This is a really hard text because our culture believes exactly the opposite of what the scriptures teach on this subject. We've talked about this many times whenever the topic of love comes up. Uh, Our culture teaches that love is romance. It's a feeling. It's based on the desires in your own heart. The scripture teaches us that love is an action, and we can look to God and his word to know how to actually love each other. So I'm going to pray that his spirit would teach us, uh, help us. Let's pray. God, we ask that you would change us, that you would remake us to be more like you. You'd conform us to the image of your son. God, we confess that we need to repent. We need to turn from the ways that we've loved self, loved our own desires, loved our culture, and not loved you. We pray that you would change us, and we pray that your spirit would do that by your grace and through your word, and we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So the big idea is the bounds of genuine love. What are those boundaries? Um, One of the things that he says at the very beginning is he says, here's not hypocritical love. He gives kind of two rapid-fire left-right boundaries, right? He gives us this in verse 9. He says, real quickly, let love be genuine, not hypocritical, and then he says, Hate what is evil, abhor. Nobody says, anybody here say abhor? Okay, hate what is evil, hate what is evil, hold fast to what is good. Cling to it tenaciously, right? Hold on to it like you're going to die if you lose your grip. Those are the boundaries of love, which is totally different from what our culture says about love. Our culture says love is just a feeling and you just kind of float along and it's something you can fall into like a puddle, you know, and it just happens to you. Now, don't get me wrong, romance and chemistry in a relationship is a, is a wonderful gift, but that's not biblical love. It's this other thing, right? It's this other great fun thing that if you do have chemistry, if you do have romance with someone and decide to marry them, then you're committing to the rest of your life to do biblical love with that person. And so biblical love is bounded by hating what is evil and clinging to what is good. Who defines what is evil and what is good? Well, in our culture, we're told that we do. Whatever's right in our own eyes, whatever we like, that's evil. Or whatever we like is good. Whatever we don't like is evil, right? Our culture has made it completely internal. Everything is based on looking inside our own soul. And God says, there's a problem in your soul. You need to look out to God. And we find the answers there, right? And so we've got the boundaries set by his law, God's commands, this is right, this is wrong, right? Basically, the Ten Commandments, as summarized and repeated in the New Testament commands of morality, right? There's a consistent morality between the Old Testament and the New Testament. We're no longer bound by the ceremonies of the Old Testament, or we're no longer bound by all the judicial laws of the Old Testament. But even those ceremonies and those judicial laws point us to the moral law that we are still bound to, that we should love each other within the boundaries of what God says is right and wrong. And more and more, our culture is forgetting these things. As I've been reflecting on that this week, one of the regrets I have as someone you know, about to turn 50 at this age in ministry is I think our generation of pastors, people in ministry, Christians, however you want to describe it, 
has been too often okay with sin in the sense of as we try to reach out to those who are, who are lost and don't know Jesus, we often try so hard to be laid back and like, we, you know, Jesus accepts anybody, which he does. Any sin can be forgiven, which it can, that sometimes we've erred on the side of acting like sin is no big deal. The Bible says sin is a big deal and it's killing you. It's killing you. So, so Jude says it this way. We studied Jude, I think it was just last year, right? Was that last year we studied Jude? Jude says it this way, Jude, verses 22 and 23. Have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others, show mercy with fear, hating even the garment that is stained by the flesh. There's this idea that we would kind of be horrified by sin. Somehow we still are to love sinners, right? At some level, the cliche is true. Hate the sin, love the sinner. Some level that is true, but we want to love based on what God says love is. So here are the three things that I believe this passage teaches us about love. Genuine love fights. It fights, it struggles, it competes even is is one of the phrases that we get here. Genuine love spends. It costs us our resources. And then genuine love gets messy. Genuine love gets messy. So as we seek to love Colleen, We're going to fight for real love, we're going to spend our resources, and we're going to get messy as we get involved in people's lives. So number one, genuine love fights. Um, Another way to say this is it's not easy, it's not accidental, it's something we have to strive for. He says this in verses 10 through 12, love one another with brotherly affection. So this is an activity that we engage in. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. That's the competition. Um, any of you competitive? I, I played sports growing up. I always wanted to win the race. It's a, a conflict my wife and I have sometimes. I, I sometimes think when I'm driving a car that I'm actually racing people, and she has to remind me, no, you're not racing. You're not trying to win. I always feel like I am. Um, here, he says, that should be channeled towards outdoing one another and showing honor, brotherly affection. If you feel that competitive spirit of wanting to like squash your enemies and beat other people, Paul says channel that competitive spirit in showing honor to one another. What if that was our competition? What if that's what we were fighting to win, that we were outdoing one another and showing honor and loving one another with brotherly affection? He goes on in verse 11, says, don't be slothful in your zeal. Don't let the fire die. Keep being zealous. Don't be a sloth but be fervent in spirit. Be fervent in spirit and serve the Lord. Amen? Amen? Be fervent in spirit means literally to be a raging fire, to boil over. That's what he's calling us to. I I grabbed a picture here. I don't know. How many of you have ever had a, uh, a fried turkey? Have you ever done that? You know, fire departments have been warning us that it can be really dangerous. In all seriousness, it can be a very dangerous thing, so be very careful if you do this. Uh, But here's one of these fire department demonstrations. I've seen a lot of these around Thanksgiving time. They're trying to warn people about how dangerous this is, how easy it it can be that it will boil over, that it will burst into flame, that it will explode, that it will spread. And Paul's using that kind of language to say, this is how you should love one another. It should be like an out-of-control raging fire. It should be boiling over. You should be trying to outdo one another with your love. It should be like this aggressive competition. Fake love, cultural love just happens to you. You just feel it. It's a thing that you wait for the desires 
or it's a puddle you fall into. But real love is this, is this aggressive spreading fire. We're fervent in spirit. Martin Lloyd-Jones has a quote on 1 Thessalonians 5.19 that says, don't quench the spirit. Don't quench the spirit. That's a kind of a, a negative way of saying, you know, let the fire burn in your spirit. Jones says this, a characteristic of dead orthodoxy is a dislike of enthusiasm. So that's a characteristic of, of dead orthodoxy. We dislike enthusiasm, and this is, uh, this is convicting. We're, we're, if you don't know and you're just shopping around churches, we're the kind of church that takes the Scriptures very seriously. And if you come here week after week, we're going to teach the Bible to you, and we're going to do it systematically, and we're going to try to do it clearly, and we're going to try to be as faithful to the text as we can. Sometimes, though, churches like ours can fall into a suspicion of fervency, a suspicion of, of fighting for love and enthusiasm. And that's a danger we have to watch out for. So Martin Lloyd-Jones says, a characteristic of dead orthodoxy is a dis- dislike of enthusiasm. It can be one of the greatest hindrances to revival, new life in the church. As I understand the matter, he says, there are two great principles laid down in the New Testament for our help and for our guidance. The first principle is that everything must be done decently and in order. We saw that in 1 Corinthians 14. But there's another principle, quench not the spirit. And we're getting a parallel to that phrase, quench not the spirit here. Be fervent in spirit. Let this burn in you. Let it boil over. Let the fire spread. So so how do we do that? Again, this is not just a call to vague fervency. This is not just a call to say, all you introverts, repent and just start being extroverts, right? All you laid back people, weep and wail, God wants you to be more hyperactive. Well, maybe in these specific areas, right? He gives us specific tracks to run down. He says, love one another with brotherly affection. Are you loving one another with brotherly affection? Are you, just, are you showing kindness and encouragement to your brothers and sisters in Christ? We always say join a group. Part of why we say join a group is it's good for our soul to be encouraging other Christians, Maybe hard for you to join one of the stated regular groups or classes that meet, but you could grab another friend and say, hey, let's just pray for each other and encourage each other to obey Jesus. That would be a way to show brotherly affection to another. Outdo one another, showing honor, that competition. Don't be slothful as you'll be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. And then he gives in verse 12, three clear practices of what it means to fight for love. Okay? Three clear, clear practices. Rejoice in hope. What does it look like to rejoice in hope? In hope. Literally, that would be worshiping Jesus, rejoicing in hope. We celebrate the hope that we have in Jesus. I've shared this with you before. I'm not a very emotional person. I'm, you know, I'm repenting here of my lack of enthusiasm sometimes, but sometimes I feel closest to the Lord on the worst weeks. And then I come to church and I'm praising God for his salvation in Jesus. And I'm remembering that that's what really matters. Everything fell apart this week, but I feel like I love him more than ever because it's even more real in those times when I really, really need hope, right? When everything's just kind of floating along and life is easy, I don't don't feel the need as much. But when things are hard, I I rejoice in hope in public worship. He says, then be patient in tribulation. Uh, Be patient in in your hardship. We're all in hardship. That's the time that we live in. We live in the time of hardship. We talked about this some last week about um, suffering, hopefully. What does that look like to endure hopeful suffering? Well, it means that we, we struggle in this world. We fight disease and difficulty and broken relationships, but we do that with hope, knowing that Jesus is going to wipe away every tear from our eyes and make all things right. Finally, be constant in prayer. Pray. 
That's something you can do. You could go home today and you could pray. You could pray right now. You could pray that we would understand this. You could pray that we could live this out. You could pray in morning devotions. You could pray with friends in your small group. You could pray around the dinner table. Pray. Pray. Be constant in prayer. I want to encourage you that as you think about developing prayer, and hopefully we'll maybe get some new classes going on prayer here soon, uh, but two things that I think of that kind of help us to develop our prayer life. One is praying without ceasing, being constant, making prayer a conversation, just talking to Jesus about everything you're struggling with or doubting, that kind of conversational style, but also setting aside time for formal prayer, praying through a list, praying through a, a prayer book or uh, singing uh, hymns as prayers to Jesus on purpose, having formal set-aside prayer time where you're practicing it on purpose, maybe with some scripts, maybe with some helps, maybe praying through the Psalms, and then conversational prayer where you're you're just talking to Jesus. And as you attack it from both sides, I think that will grow your prayer life. So genuine love fights. The next thing that we see is that genuine love spins. Genuine love spins. It's not painless and it's not cheap. Verse 13 and 14 discuss this. In verse 13 and 14, Paul says it this way, contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. So he's really giving three layers here of spending your resources to show tangible love to other people, right? First one is contribute to the needs of the saints, got a brother or sister in your group that, that needs help, you help them out, right? You pitch in. Um, I want to thank, thank you guys, those that have like brought us meals and prayed for us as my wife had, had surgery a week and a half ago. Thank you for that. That's tangible ways to show love. Actually, we had too many offers, so, so uh, I didn't call some of you back about that. Thank you for offering. Um, we have plenty of food. Uh, but, but you guys do that to other people as well, people that you're friends with, your neighbors, helping out your neighbors. Man, it was beautiful seeing this during the ice storm couple of years ago where people were just helping people out in tangible ways, right? Contribute to the needs of the saints, actual tangible needs. And then he goes from there, second half of verse 13, he says, show hospitality. So contribute to the needs of the saints and then show hospitality. I grabbed a picture here of of people uh, sharing a meal together because I think that's a pretty much the most common way we think about hospitality and contributing to the needs of each other when we're struggling. But it can be, you know, way more complex than that, right? It can be something more than a meal. Hospitality itself really just means showing affection for outsiders, showing kindness to strangers. So in the ancient world, that would often mean giving them a place to stay and a meal, right? In our day and age, maybe those things are easier to find. Maybe showing kindness to strangers is conversation, it's time, giving them direction, helping them out. Um, I don't know what it might be for you. This is a time of the year when lots of outsiders move in to our city because we have so many new people moving in all the time. So showing kindness to outsiders, showing kindness to strangers could just be starting a friendship, inviting them to church, letting them know about our Impact Backyard Bible Clubs, uh, helping them find hope in Jesus. These are different ways that we can show kindness to outsiders, to show hospitality, contributing to tangible needs, spending of our own time, money, talents, emotion, to help and serve other people. And then verse 14, it's like the farthest out ring, right? So there's contribute to the needs of the saints, our Christian family, showing hospitality, outsiders, new people that maybe aren't that scary. You know, your neighbor moves in, they, they look okay. You go make friends, you help them out. And then there's this farther out thing here in verse 14, bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse them. 
That's one of the crazy marks of Christians. That's one of these bizarre changes in the new covenant. Jesus talked about this a lot on the Sermon on the Mount, right? Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. That's right. That's a new, it's a new turn because of what Jesus has done for us. He's changed us to make us gracious like God is. God loved us. Even while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. The gospel is that you and I had turned on God, that we had been uh, cosmic betrayers. We'd betrayed the only truly perfect and holy one. And God came after us in his love. He took our sins upon himself on the cross His wrath was poured out on Jesus. He died in our place as our sacrifice. He paid the price through His blood. And then He rose from the dead, proving that He had fully paid the price. That He had fully defeated sin and death. That He has conquered these things for us. And so Jesus spent everything for us. And as we follow Him, we'll spend for other people. We'll even bless those who persecute us. Bless and do not curse them. So how do we do this? Uh, I think just start with the people in your proximity. Number one, pray, because we can't do everything, right? I think a lot of times people hear these ideas of all that God is calling us to do in Christ, and we get overwhelmed because there's so many opportunities, right? There's so much hurt, and we see things from all over the world with the, the way our modern communication works. We're aware of more needs than we can possibly emotionally respond to. So think about the concentric circles here. Who are the saints? Who are the brothers and sisters in Christ in your proximity? Your small group, your neighbors, your family. Who are the people close to you? How can you contribute to their needs? And then farther out, who are some new people that God's brought in your circle? Some outsiders you can show hospitality to. And then finally, that outside circle. Is there someone particularly right now that's making your life miserable? What would it look like if you prayed, God, show me ways I could bless them tangibly? And you can be honest with God about it, right? Like, God knows that that person drives you crazy. Did you know that? God knows that. You can be honest with him. God, this, this person drives me crazy. They're making me nuts. Will you show me a tangible way I could bless them? I'm not feeling it, but Lord, help me get there. Let me bless them in some tangible way. So what would it look like for us to work from inside to outside Here at our church, there's a couple of needs we have. Uh, Kathy mentioned this earlier during announcements. We need people to help with the welcome team. We need people to help with the tech, uh, with worship. We do stuff like, you know, putting the music up on the slides and run sound and helping out with those things, cameras, things like that. We also really need people with nursery. We're going to gear back up next week with elementary Sunday school and preschool nursery and uh, all the different extra layers of ministry here as a way to welcome people in the name of Jesus to our church, new people that are moving in all the time. And so we covet your involvement. If you can get involved, those are ways that you can spend of your own resources. We've also got an Afghan resettlement team that's working right now. We're still waiting to hear back about receiving an Afghan refugee family that we can help resettle. And they've done great work preparing and now are waiting to hear back about that. We support Hope Pregnancy Center with the baby bottle boomerang. Uh, Foster Love Bell County, I think they've got a fundraiser coming up this summer. Look for ways that you can spend your resources to honor Jesus with your love. The last one is that genuine love gets messy. Genuine love gets messy. Verses 15 and 16. I think this one might be the hardest one. Verse 15 and 16 says, Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, 
but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. This one's hard. This one's really hard. Again, especially for our tribe, a tribe that takes so seriously teaching the truth and maybe is suspicious of enthusiasm, like Martin Lloyd-Jones talked about. What does it look like for us to rejoice with those who rejoice? People who have the gift of wisdom and teaching often want to say, hey, hey, slow down if people are rejoicing too much. Have you ever noticed that? I want to be like, hey, don't be too happy, right? Like, let's reel that in a little bit. Paul says, no, rejoice with those who rejoice. When people are happy, we should be happy with them. What would that look like if we were the kind of people that were actually happy with other people's happiness? We're excited about that. Now, again, we want to hate what's evil. We don't want to celebrate someone's happiness and something destructive, right? We would mourn that. But that, that's not what Paul's talking about here. He's just talking about everyday happiness. When someone gets something you don't have, are you mad that God's holding out on you? Or do you trust that God has been gracious to you in Christ so you can be happy with them? Like, hey, God's blessed them. I'm going to be happy for the blessing that God has given them. And then the flip side of that is that we would weep with those who weep. We would grieve with those who grieve. Literally cry with those who cry. You may not be able to push tears out of your face when someone else is crying, right? I'm not very good at that. But I, I can be sad with someone, right? Like you can say to them, I'm, man, I'm sorry. That is, that is sad. It makes sense that that is sad. Again, sometimes we want to correct first. We want to say, oh, you're sad? You shouldn't be sad. It's not Christian to be sad. Let me tell you all the reasons not to be sad. Well, no, Paul says, if someone's sad, you can be sad with them. There's space for correction. There's space for exhortation. The New Testament's full of that, right? Like we should be exhorting each other. We don't want to fall off the wagon on the other side where we only do emotional connection and we never speak truth, right? That would be falling off too far the other direction. But we got to do both. We, we want to speak truth to one another. We want to exhort one another to be like, all right, this is what Jesus says about this. But we can start with, you're happy, I'm happy with you. I'm going to celebrate with you. You're sad, I'll, I'll be sad with you. He goes on and says, don't be haughty. Live in harmony with one another. Verse 16, live in harmony is literally think the same thing as each other. Align your your thinking, be on the same page with one another. Don't be haughty. Uh, Haughty is proud, puffed up, thinking you're better than other people. Man, the gospel is the best way to not be haughty. The gospel says God is God and I'm not. God is righteous, I'm not righteous. God is holy, I'm, I'm not holy, and I need God to fix my lack of holiness. I need Jesus to bridge the gap between me and God. And so the gospel undermines pride, it undermines haughtiness. It, it tells me I'm, I'm not that awesome, I'm broken too. Even when you're helping somebody with something that you're like, man, I would never do that, because that, that happens, right? Someone's done something and you're just like, man, I can't believe you. Go back to the gospel Like, yeah, but while I was still a sinner, Christ died for me. And that can help get my mind right. It can help get your mind right. Because that happens to me a lot, right? Like, I've got these problems, but I don't have that problem. So when someone comes to me with that problem, I'm like, oh, man, how could you be so stupid? (laughs) But if if it's my problem, maybe I could relate to them a little. No, we all have problems. We're all sinners. We've all turned from God. And it's only by the sovereign act of the God of the universe invading our world that we have any reconciliation with God, we have any forgiveness, we have any grace because of what he's done, not because of what we've done. We didn't pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps, but, but Jesus saved us. So don't be haughty. Associate with the lowly and never be wise in your own sight. 
associate with the lowly. Paul doesn't really define this for us, but there are people in, in all of our lives that we category as, as lowly, right? Maybe weak would be another way of saying that. Maybe not really having their stuff together, not being very smart, not being very strong, not being very wise. Don't be wise in your own eyes. Associate with the lowly. What would it look like if, if we were known for having a, a free love and kindness, those who are weak and broken? Somehow, Paul is saying we are to do that and hate what is evil. We are to love what is good, cling to what is good, hate what is evil, and still show compassion and not think that we're wise. How do we do that? What does that look like? Well, again, for this particular text, um, he talks a lot about this sympathy stuff. I grabbed a picture here of a couple of guys crying with each other, uh, grieving with each other. I thought it was ironic that they were wearing like uh, construction hats. They look like tough guys, right? You wouldn't imagine them actually sharing feelings with each other. Because I think for a lot of us, this, this sounds like an unfair command, right? It's like, it sounds like God saying, for those of you that are not touchy-feely people, you need to be touchy-feely people. Do you ever feel that? Does that, does that feel like that's what he's saying here? I think you can just speak truth and use rejoicing or happy language, or you can use sad, weeping language, Right? You may not be a touchy-feely person, but if someone's really grieving, you can say with your words, man, that's sad. Or if someone's celebrating something good, you can say, that's really awesome. That's really great. Thank God for that, right? It starts with your words. You don't have to rush to the like extreme of, you know, thinking of your most emotionally compassionate friend. You don't have to look like that, but we want to meet people where they are. So use your language and also continually go back to the gospel and say, the gospel shows me that I'm not haughty, that I have nothing to be proud of, that I'm not wise. Only God is wise. So God, continue to remake me and show me that I have something to learn from other people, even, even broken people, even if I can correct them and say, hey, man, you're, this, is, this is not a good idea. Let me help you. Let me help you move towards obedience to God's standards, right? I I hate what is evil, but I'm not going to hate this person. I'm going to love the person and show them that this thing that you're doing is, is evil and it can hurt you. I'm going to lovingly guide them in that direction. It's just an amazing thing that we see in Scripture. Uh, Lamentations 3.33 talks about God's, God's heart for mercy. Isaiah 28 talks about it's really his, his strange work that he shows justice and he destroys what is evil. We live in the tension of those two things. God is absolutely merciful and God is absolutely just. And so we are headed to a future where God is going to destroy evil. That is coming. But we live in a present time where God is making his appeal through us. Where God is patiently speaking through us and saying, turn from evil and trust in Jesus and he will forgive your sins. At our church, as you can imagine, being a church in a military town, most of us believe in what is called just war theory. Most of us believe in Romans chapter 13, the next chapter in this book, that says that God actually works his vengeance and his destruction of evil and wickedness through the power of the sword, through police and soldiers. We actually believe that 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 is part of how God has worked. But the church's job is not to wield the sword and chop off the head of evildoers. That, that's not the church's job. That's the soldier's job. And so this can be confusing for those of you that are both soldiers and members of a church. 
When you put on your church uniform, maybe we should get a uniform. That would make it better, right? I don't, I don't think we're going there. But when you're acting as a representative of the church, you're making your appeal that they would repent. They would turn from their sin and throw themselves on the mercy of Jesus. That's what the church does, right? Peter wielded the power of the sword when Jesus was getting kidnapped, and Jesus, Jesus was like, no, put the sword away. That's not how we're doing this. So there's a tension we live in. Yeah, we believe that God has given that power to the state for good reason. But we also believe it's our job to, to love others by saying, repent, turn, trust in Jesus. And this is the direction that Paul's going in this whole passage. He ends um, with the next section. As I said, we didn't read all of it. But he says, repay no one evil for evil. Uh, verse 21, don't be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. So there's this temptation we have towards vengeance. And Paul says very clearly, we should leave room for God to exercise vengeance. But we should show love. Again, not a fluffy, unbounded love. Not a love that says anything you do is great. You just do you. That, that's not biblical love. Biblical love is, oh, you're, you're hurting yourself. You should stop. That's evil and it's going to destroy you. Two of the big uh, emphases in Romans he starts off with, in Romans 1 and Romans 2, two great evils. Romans 1, he starts with the, the great evil of sexual immorality. It's one of the great evils biblically that our culture today is saying, oh, it's fine. It's no big deal. We should hate that evil, even as we love those who are caught in that trap. Romans 1 says that God's wrath is poured out on those who are caught up in sexual immorality by letting them continue to be involved in sexual immorality. That's God's wrath. But his grace is shown in the gospel. He turns in chapter 2 and he says, religious people, those who believe that they're justified by their behavior, God's wrath is also poured out on them. Because the only way that we can escape God's wrath is through the gospel. Romans chapter 3. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And Jesus is our only hope. And so if we want to show genuine love, we'll continue to stand for what's right. We'll say, God has biblical boundaries. This is right. This is wrong. But we'll show kindness. We won't be haughty. We won't be proud. We won't be wise in our own eyes. We'll continue to say, but for the grace of God go I. I've, I've failed as well, but man, because I love you, I don't want you to keep going down this road. Consider Jesus. Jesus loves you. It's worth it to trust yourself to Jesus, to be forgiven of your sin and begin to walk in a new direction. Romans 12, passage we're in the very beginning says, in view of God's mercy, offer your body as a living sacrifice. We walk in this new direction. We love other people. We serve others in this way because of God's mercy, because of Romans chapters 1 through 11, because of the grace that's been shown to us in Jesus, because of the sovereign kindness of love as he's adopted us and saved us and reclaimed us for himself, because of that mercy, we offer our bodies as living sacrifices. Let me pray for us. God, thank you for the love that you've shown us in Jesus. I pray that you would teach us how to do this well. None of us know how to do this, Lord. We're not wise in our own eyes. Help us to not be haughty. Help us to to turn to you. Help us to be constant in prayer. Help us to outdo one another in showing honor. Help us to show compassion as we rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. And Lord, you are, you are good. And it's only in entrusting ourselves to you that we can begin to do good ourselves. So we pray that your spirit would remake us and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.